Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho, and also Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word as we finish our series from the book of Judges. And as Pastor Eric just mentioned, uh, we are going to end with a bang. Uh, this is probably the most challenging section of the entire Bible, and I just want to take note, as, as Pastor Eric did, note to parents, uh, the disclaimer there that this message may be inappropriate for children. So just want to give you that heads up. Now, you may have never heard a message from this part of the Bible. As a matter of fact, I was just checking my notes, and the last time I preached from this section was eight and a half years ago. So if you're a visitor, you have come in on a once-in-a-decade message. Aren't you blessed? All right, once in a decade. And I even thought about it. I thought, oh, when I realized the Christmas decorations were going to be up, I was like, ah, maybe we'll just skip it, you know? Uh, end with Samson like we did last week. That's kind of a cool place to end up the series. And plus, it's December. The decorations are up. Let's just pivot to our Christmas series. Next week, by the way, we're going to start our Christmas series and focus full on with Christmas. I thought, let's just skip this section and just charge right away into Christmas. But you know, there are a couple of things that stop me from doing that. First of all, here at Purpose Church, we don't avoid tough issues and we don't avoid tough passages. And then the second thing I thought that would be so wonderful for us today to deal with this, if God can speak through this passage of the Bible, he can speak through any part of the Bible. And so it just lets you know, anything you read in the Bible, God can apply that to our lives. Now we're going to describe this as Christian atheism. That's the title of our study here today. And, and the people that we're going to see here with this Christian atheism, uh, these people believe in God, but practically they act like atheists. So they believe in their heads, they believe in God. But in practical matters, they act like atheists. Now, we have a lot of people in our culture that would, would fit into that category. And a lot of times, you know, we act that way too. At, at least I do. Uh, I know I act like a Christian atheist sometimes. I say I believe in God, but sometimes my, my beliefs are all mixed up. And sometimes my actions are all mixed up between that was what God would want and what he, uh, he would not want. Let's pick it up with Judges 17, verse 1. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me, I took it. Now, he had stolen 1,100 shekels from, from his mom, and this is a bunch of money. This is like her whole life savings. This is like her whole dowry. This is a lot of money. And so he's afraid, he's not afraid enough of God to not steal from his mother. But he is afraid enough when he heard her utter a curse, whoever stole this money, I put a curse on him. He was enough fearful of God that he didn't want that curse landing on him. And so he confesses it to his mom. And she tries to reverse the curse by his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. Verse 3, when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. And you're like, this lady's got it right. Oh my goodness, this is, this, is, this is a woman of God. This is a wise woman of God. But then you continue, I consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an idol. For my son to make an image overlaid with silver. And now we're going to see a lot of that in this passage where it's like, yay, not so yay. 
Yay, oh no, not good. She's like, I consecrated to the Lord. There's, they're like all mixed up. It's kind of make it up as you go religion is what's going on here. They just kind of make it up as they go, as they see fit uh, in their own eyes. Verse 4. This continues. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. Now the Levites, the priests were supposed to come from the tribe of Levi, and they also were supposed to be descendants of Aaron. So he couldn't just pick anybody to be a priest. There had to be a certain priestly line. But he just says, hey, you, Bubba, son number three, uh, you be my priest. Verse 6, he says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now let's just hang with this for a moment. You're going to see this phrase repeated four times in this passage. In those days, Israel had no king. They had no King David. They had no representative of God who would point them to the commands of God and challenge them to live according to God's ways. There was nobody in that position. And so four times it's mentioned. It's almost as if the writer is saying, I can't believe I'm writing this down. But remember, there was no king. And two of the four times they add this phrase, everyone did as they saw fit. Everybody just kind of made it up as they went along. Everybody kind of made up their own morality as they went along as well. So point number one is that Christian atheism redefines God rather than submits to him. Now we all get the first of the Ten Commandments. You're to have no other gods before me. That makes total sense. No other gods before God. But then the second commandment, sometimes we're like, okay, what's the big deal about that? Don't make any uh, brazen images of God, okay? Because uh, what she's doing here is they're making an idol to the one true God. So the first commandment is about not worshiping the wrong God. But the second commandment is about not worshiping the right God in the wrong way. And it's kind of like, okay, what's the big deal? She's making an image to honor God. Well, here's the problem why God was so against images, idols made even of him. An image can't possibly capture the full range of God's glory. Uh, we will inevitably highlight parts of his nature that appeal to us and will conceal or de-emphasize the parts that don't appeal to us. For example, um, you magnify the strength of God but minimize his compassion. Or you, you maximize and celebrate his grace but minimize or ignore his purity and his, and his justice. It's not a God as he is, but a God as we want him to be, which is not a real God at all. It's just a deified version of, of ourself. It's a rejection of God and a choice of, of myself. Um, now, along with this redefinition of God comes a redefinition of morality. Uh, back to verse 6 once again. It says, everyone did as they saw fit. So you redefine God and then you redefine right and wrong according to your preferences. Now, in many ways, this is the primary sin of our culture. We don't completely reject Jesus. We just want him to be a certain way. Well, my Jesus is like this, or my Jesus is like that. Or how many times have you heard this? I can't believe in a God that would say such and such. Or I can't believe in a God who would do uh, such and such. So when I define God and morality the way I prefer them to be, I'm not submitting to God's will at all. 
I'm really just worshiping my preferences. And I just need to own up to it and admit that what seems fit in my own eyes carries more weight than God's Word says. Uh, Let's pick it up. We'll see a second thing about Christian atheism in verse uh, 7 through 13. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. And you know what's kind of cool about this story? And if you hang with me till the end, we got a lot of rough sledding to go here, okay? But if you hang with me to the end, you're going to see God just bring this together in a beautiful way. And I think it's, it's really cool that this all happens around Bethlehem where Jesus was born and Jerusalem. So this all happens in the area around Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And so this young Levite is from Bethlehem. So see, it's a Christmas message after all. He came from the little town of Bethlehem is where he came from, who had been living within the clan of Judah. Left that town and searched for some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house, remember who has the idol, uh, in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and like be my personal priest. And the Levite's like, uh, it doesn't really work that way. And I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. He said, let me pray about it. And he goes like this. Sure, I, I think that, that, that sounds great. That sounds great. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Now, Micah's making a couple of assumptions here. Number one, that God exists to serve him. And number two, if if Micah can just do the right things, God is obligated uh, then to bless him. Now, in contrast to that, true faith says, God, I exist for you, and, and you don't owe me anything. I owe you. J.D. Greer writes, uh, J.D. Greer says, um, false religion seeks control of God. True faith surrenders to God. When you try to control God, you live with anxiety. When you surrender to God, you live in peace. So here's the first question of the morning. What kind of God are you seeking? What kind of God are we seeking? The kind of God we can use or the kind of God that we worship and submit to? Let Let me show you what happens when you shrink God down to a size you can control. In chapter 18, another group of Israelites show up at Micah's house. Now, they've got more money than Micah. They've got more armed men than Micah. They've got more power than Micah. So they steal his priest, and they steal his idol. And so Micah chases after him and says, hey, you can't do that. And they said, what's what's the big deal? And here's what he says in chapter 18, verse 24. He replied, you took the gods I made. Now think about that for a moment. You stole the gods that I made. When when we have a God of our own making, he can be stolen from us. When we have a God that's so small that we have made him in our own image, we have to constantly live with anxiety because it can be stolen from us. Just like losing your keys. Whoa, I lost my God. Or like laying awake worried that you're going to lose your house. You can lose your God. Um, uh, you, you took the gods I made and my priests and went away. What else do I have? What else do I have? I, I have lost the God of my own making. But when you surrender to the true God, 
He'll never lose you. You can lose a God of your own making. A God that's small enough to be of your own making, you can lose that God. But when you surrender to the true God, he will never lose you. Now the next few stories are going to show what happens when God is absent from a nation and from a culture. Uh, Chapter 19, uh, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. It's like he keeps reminding you. This crazy stuff I'm about to write. Remember, no king to call us back to God. Now, a Levite, different Levite, but not a very, just like the other one, not a very good Levite. You'll see in a moment. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim. By the way, I think this, as you're going to see in a moment, is the coldest man in the Bible. I think this guy has the coldest heart of just about anybody in Scripture. So he lived in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem in, in Judah. Now, a concubine was kind of a second-class wife. Um, in a society where polygamy was, was common, a concubine could be purchased, they could be acquired as payment for a debt, or they could be taken in war. Uh, verse 2, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in, in Bethlehem in Judah. So uh, he goes to try to get her and convince her and her father to let her come back and live with him. And so she agrees. So they set out the first night, and they come as far as a little town called Gibeah, which is five miles from Jerusalem. Now hang on to that little geographical detail. It's going to matter at the very end of the message. So uh, we pick it up with verse 14. So they went on, and the sun set as they near Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square. That's what you did back then. You didn't have hotel reservations. You'd sit in the city square and see if somebody came out and offered to have you stay at their home that night. But no one took them in for the night. Uh, Now, uh, this old man comes in, uh, comes home from working in the fields that day, and uh, buckle up, um, here, here it comes. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. That's ominous right there. Don't, whatever you do, don't stay outdoors. Come in my house. Don't spend the night out in the open. So he took him into his house, fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, and let's hold it here for just a moment. Let's hold this first. No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Now, let's just hold it there for a second. You're like, wow, finally, somebody is a man of God. Finally, somebody knows right from wrong. Finally, we have somebody bold enough to stand up for justice, even at the threat of his own life. Wait for verse 24. Here it comes. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. The human capacity to pick and choose our own personal morality is staggering. I'm amazed about it in my own life. My blind spots have blind spots. 
Oh God, reveal your light on my blind spots so that I can see your perspective and not my perspective. Because I can be so self-righteous and moral in one area and just have a huge blind spot over there. Uh, the, the human capacity to pick and choose our morality is staggering. We can go to church on Sunday and then tell a racist joke at work on Monday. We can go to a Save the Whales march on Tuesday and then go to a pro-abortion march on Wednesday. We can pray about our relationship on Thursday and then move in with our girlfriend on Friday. Have I offended everyone yet? <laughs> All right. Um, now, don't feel bad. I just offended myself. Just offended myself. Glenn, you just offended me. Uh, I offended myself. Uh, here's the hardest part. Hang in there. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer because she's dead. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and sent them into all the places of Israel. Now, there is a righteous indignation response to this. Uh, Judges chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead, came together as one and assembled before the Lord and Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah, then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. And the Levite tells the story, conveniently leaving out his role in it. Tells a completely doctored story to them. But they're incensed. And so they, they, they go and they kill everyone in the tribe of Benjamin except for 600 men. They go and kill all of them, the whole tribe, except for 600 men. Men. Now, now here's the problem. How is that, is that tribe going to die? I mean, 600 men, no women. That tribe is just going to, they're going to go down from 12 tribes of Israel to the 11 tribes of, of, of Israel. And so in chapter 21, Judges 21, 1 through 3, they weep about this. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. Now, it's just a stupid oath. God never told him to do that. Remember Jephthah a few weeks ago? God never told him to make that oath, all right? But, but here's the crazy thing. They are doing religious things that God didn't ask them to do, and yet not doing moral things that God asked them to do. They're doing religious stuff that God never required of them, and yet they are not doing moral things, and they are doing immoral things that God told them not to do, or moral things that God told them to do. So they're replacing religious stuff, they're replacing morality before God, doing the right thing, justice, love, kindness, justice to the weak. 
they're replacing that with stupid religious stuff that God never asked them to do, like this oath here that now gets them in trouble because how are we going to get wives for these 600 guys? That tribe's going to die. Verse 22, the people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? And you're like, are you kidding me? Now you have the audacity to blame God for what's happened? They do this horrific thing, and then they blame God for what they themselves have done. Now they come up with a plan to fix, get wives for these 600 guys. And it's not God's plan. God didn't tell them this plan. They come up with a plan. They said, hey, who didn't come with us to fight against the Benjamites? And they take a muster, they take a roster, a census, and they find out Jabesh Gilead. Nobody showed up from Jabesh Gilead. So they go and they kill everybody in Jabesh Gilead except for 400 virgins. So now if you're doing the math on this, 600 men... 400 virgins, okay, from the leftover from who they killed in Jabesh Gilead, they're still 200 short. And then one guy says, hey, there's this annual festival up in Shiloh where the women have this tradition where once a year they go out in the fields and they do this dance and the men don't come with them. That's a perfect opportunity for a kidnapping. This whole book is dumb, dumber, and dumbest. So dumb does one thing, and dumber comes up with another plan, and dumbest comes up with the worst plan of all. So they go to kidnap these girls. Judges 21, verse 20. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, go and hide in the, in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us the favor of helping them because we did not get them wives for them during the war. You'll not be guilty of breaking your oath. You know, you don't have to, you won't feel bad about breaking an oath because we kidnapped somebody. So, you know, you won't have to worry about the little religious thing you did because we've gone and kidnapped some girls because you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife when they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit, and the book of Judges just ends right there. And the credits roll. And you're like, what kind of ep- ending episode? I mean, that was like the last one of Lost. I'm telling you. It's like, what, what, what is with that? Okay, a couple of observations, but then we're going to see what God is up to. Okay? Uh, number three, a third thing about Christian atheism. When God is absent, the weak are abused. The inevitable result of casting off the rule of God is defining morality in a way that benefits the strong. If you leave God out of the picture, we will always write rules on our own that benefit the strong over the weak. So the stronger tribes uh, in in this section of Judges abuse the weaker tribes. It's survival of the fittest. I mean, without God, Hitler becomes our hero. Because survival of the fittest, strong prevail, wipe out the weak, yay, strong. Uh, Stronger groups uh, avoid weaker groups, like the Israelite women. 
Okay? It abused the Israelite women. One scholar says you can see how their, Israel's relationship was with God by, and judges by how they treat women. And by the way, you can tell how any culture stands before God by how they treat women. You can use that judgment all through human history and around the world. And so at the beginning of Judges, it's the evil Canaanites like Sisera that are raping and abusing Israelite women. But by the end of the book of Judges, it's the Israelites themselves, the Israelite men, who are abusing them. Now, when you take God out of the equation, the strong inevitably begin to oppress the weak. One of the greatest achievements of the Declaration of Independence is where it says, we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. We are endowed not by majority rule, but by our Creator, not by the strongest, but we are endowed by our Creator, God, with certain inalienable rights. That's why Benjamin Franklin said, I love this quote, democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. Liberty is the lamb having grounds before God on which to contest the vote. That's why Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. could come along and on the basis of that could say that the American majority was wrong in how they treated black men and women. And uh, even though it was the law of the land, it violated a higher law, which was the law of the creator. Now, who are the weak among us today? And I'm just a partial list. And, you know, this might be something to talk about in your small group. This might be something to talk with your family and, and lunch or on the drive home or um, um, with, with other people. Um, who are the weak among us today? I, I wrote down a few. Uh, the homeless are some of the weak among us. And that's why our church has, has a homeless ministry. The hungry are the weak among us. Uh, that's why we have the Beta Center here on our church campus, largest feeding ministry in this, in this part of, of, of Southern California. Um, uh, that's why we have our Beta Center. That's why we have our clothing ministry here at our church. Uh, prisoners and their families are the weakest. That's why if you look in your program today, you'll see the Angel Tree program to minister to the kids of those that are incarcerated. Or why some of our men uh, work with the Kairos ministry at the Chino prison and now are going to the Tehachapi State Supermax prison. Uh, victims of human trafficking right here along Holt Avenue are some of the weak. And that's why we have everyone free ministry. Uh, the unborn are some of the weak. So that's why we have our for life ministry. Victims of domestic violence are among the weak. So that's why we have our Purple Hearts ministry. And as soon as I start li listing ministries, I always forget like most of them, whenever I do that. Um, we as Christians ought to speak up for anyone in a position of weakness. Let me give a challenge to our high school students. You are most like Jesus when you speak up for those being bullied in the lunchroom. You are most like Jesus when you see a kid sitting all by themselves in the lunchroom and you're the one that goes over and sits next to them, even though it compromises your coolness status at the school. You're the one that stands up for those that are, that are being bullied. Uh, number four, the fourth thing about Christian atheism is when God is absent, we live in despair. I mean, this whole, there's no king. Yahoo, no king. Everyone do it. Make it up as you go. It sounds so awesome at the beginning. No king to tell us what to do. No, no, no God. No God to infringe on our lifestyle. No God to tell us what to do. We get to define God. We get to use God 
and we get to define my own morality. And it ends, it starts out so fun, and it ends up as hell on earth. But here's where the story takes a turn. How many of you are ready for the story to take a turn? Meanwhile, back at the ranch. See, we think of these, the books of the Bible as in strict chronology, and sometimes they are. But not, the, not, not always. They overlap sometimes. And so these horrible last five chapters of Judges are happening chronologically at the same time as the four chapters of the book of Ruth. And so meanwhile, God is up to something. Uh, Ruth is running parallel to the last chapters of Judges. Now, Ruth is not an Israelite. She's a foreigner. She's a Moabitess. And so she's a widow, a foreign widow in Israel, which is the lowest you could be in that society, the most vulnerable, the weakness. And yet despite this, she trusts God completely and follows him. Now, Judges ends with despair, but here's how the book of Ruth ends. Ruth and Boaz had a little baby boy by the name of Obed. And Obed had a baby boy by the name of Jesse, and Jesse had a boy by the name of David. And then, and then picking it up, this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, um, Jesse had a boy by the name of King David, and then skipping to verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Uh, he would be poor like his great-great-great-grandmother, uh, Ruth. He would wander as an outcast without a home like Ruth. Let's just talk about this for just a couple of minutes. Let's have the praise band come up as I do that. Um, his death would be a horrible, gruesome thing, uh, a perversion of justice like the last chapters of Judges. You know, the last few chapters of Judges are not the darkest and not the most violent chapters in the Bible. You know what the darkest and most violent chapters of the Bible is? Are the chapters that describe the crucifixion of Jesus. Those are the most violent. Those are the darkest. The Roman historian Cicero said that the goal of crucifixion was not just to kill somebody, not just to torture somebody, but to create such a public spectacle that nobody would dare rebel against Rome. Uh, Cicero writes that it was not uncommon during the scourging that preceded uh, crucifixion, like it did for Jesus. It was not uncommon during the scourging for a rib to fly off the frame of the person. Jesus most likely would have been partially disemboweled by the time he even started his crucifixion. The prophet Isaiah said he would be unrecognizable. Uh, Cicero says that crucifixion was so painful that men would weep and, and vomit and urinate all over themselves. And so you ask the question, why was the cross so bloody? And it's because the wickedness of our sin demanded it. Why did the cross have to be so bloody? Because of Judges chapter 19. That's why it had to be so bloody. But Jesus, instead of pushing his bride out like the Levite did, pushing her out to save his own skin, pushing her out, slamming the door, pushing it, and ignoring her cries for help, Jesus, instead of pushing his bride out and then cutting her up into pieces, he gave 
himself for him to be cut up into pieces in order to protect his bride. He's the one that faced the pack of animals. He's the one that said, I will be cut into pieces for the sake of my bride. I will lay down my life for my bride, the church of Jesus Christ, the followers of Jesus, so that he could redeem us as his bride and make us spotless in his sight. And I like to think that as Jesus hung on the cross, he's outside the walls of Jerusalem. He's on Golgotha, so he's on a hill, and he's on a cross. So I like to think that as he hung on the cross, he could see Gibeah, the little village five miles away. And he would think to that precious young girl a thousand years before who died in such a horrific fashion. And as he hung there, he said, Father, I am doing this for her so that that's not the end of her story. But here's the crazy thing about Jesus. Here's the reckless love of Jesus. He didn't just die for her. He died for the men that did that to her. He died for the cowardly husband that did that to her. He died for the crazy old man who could be so wise one moment and so off base the other. He did it for you and for me. And for that, we will all be eternally grateful. And all God's family said. Amen. Let's stand up. Let's stand up. Let's worship together for a little bit longer. And uh, hey, if you didn't get a chance to share communion earlier, because we did things differently today, if you didn't get a chance to do that, feel free to come on down and, and take the Lord's Supper just here at the front and take it back and, and, and share it uh, as, as we're worshiping together. Let's worship Him.